Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Decatur City Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, we would love it if you would take just a moment to download the Decatur City Church app where you can find access to all of our recent message content. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope you enjoy the following presentation and I hope it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. I feel like starting the day off with Mariah, Garth, and TLC means that like the day's probably not going to get any better than it started, but either way, I'm so glad to be with you guys here this morning as we continue our series, Navigating a Turnaround. We're taking a deep dive into the story of Jonah and plucking all of the wisdom that it has to offer. But before we do that, I kind of want to say some things to kind of get to know each other a little bit. If you don't know me, my name is Chuck Wills, and I'm grateful to be here this morning. My family and I, we started attending North Point Community Church in 1998, really right when the doors opened. And my mom and dad were both Baptists from Texas that went to very small schools. So the idea of attending a church in a hollowed out Home Depot sounded super foreign to them with moving lights and electric guitars. And so they went in and they were thinking, you know, this will be what it is. And Andy, you know, they were like, that guy's all right. But really what sold us was my siblings and I coming out of the children's environments. We loved Wombaland. My brother loved Upstreet. I, was, I got to be a part of the first group to go from Wamba through Upstreet, through Transit, then to Inside Out. I'm kind of a product of the system here. But... Um, <laughs> Oh, gosh. Um, but I was so lucky for my experience. And as soon as I was in middle school, I knew I wanted to serve in the local church. And so I, I volunteered. And what we, what we did at the time, we had Kid Stuff dancers. Some of you have seen Kid Stuff before, but, and some of you were there back then. But what Kid Stuff looked like was it was about 15 to 20 middle and high school students learning dances. And they would perform the dances to convey the message through song. And as I tell you that, you're probably like, I'm so glad we don't do that anymore. But for us, it was so fun because I got to be a part of the local church. And then when I went on to high school, as soon as I was able to, I wanted to be a transit small group leader. I love the ministry of transit. I love the way our church prioritizes and cares for the next generation. And I knew I wanted to be a part of that. And even when I went to college, I went to this school in Milledgeville. Do you have any Georgia College Bobcats in the room? So many of you. I didn't think anybody, okay, thank you. Um, But where we send our middle schoolers to camp still to this day is not far from where we do uh, camps and so from where I went to college. And so I got the opportunity to help serve and and be a part of those camps. So I just have loved this church. And and when I moved after, after college to Decatur to work for a nonprofit, well, the second I heard there was an opportunity to not just work for this church, but to work in transit, I immediately did whatever I could to do that. And I'm grateful and thankful to have been on staff here for about two years. I love working with middle schoolers. I think they're just the most fun, mischievous group of, of, of students. Uh, and something you should know about me is that when I was in middle school, I was trouble. Like I was the worst middle school student. If you think of like textbook, terrible middle school student, that was me. And I want to share with you a story of something I did in middle school that was so terrible. But before we do that, I kind of want to bring um, some research here to you guys. See, some philosophers and some scientists and, and some scholars have been doing research for the last 10, maybe hundreds of years. And I'm excited to bring that to you for the very first time this Sunday. So if you have a pen or a paper or a phone, you're going to want to take some notes because we're going to talk about the middle school guy friend group dynamic. 
The middle school guy friend group dynamic, it's very intense. There's about four major categories that fall into this dynamic. The first one you have is you got the king. Now, the king is the ringleader, kind of the Roman emperor. They kind of sit on their chair with their thumb up, and they're like giving yeses or noes to where they want the group to go. And it's pretty rigorous to get to be the king. The qualifications for being the king is, well, you have to be the oldest in the group. And so the king is great. And then secondary, you have the jester. Now, the jester is exactly what you expect. They don't really bring much to the table, not really an original thought, but they're the number two, and they kind of get to ride the coattails of the king throughout middle school. And the reason they get to do that is, well, they just have known the king the longest out of anybody in the friend group, so it's not really fair. They kind of have a leg up. Uh, Third, and what I would say is probably the most important piece of the friend group, you have the brain. Uh, The brain is the person in the friend group that is constantly coming up with all of the terrible ideas that the middle school group, they, they are going to execute. They don't have to participate, but they're the ones that come up with it. And last, and certainly least, you have the face. The face, to use a nautical term, is the bottom feeder of the group, the tilapia of the group, if you will. And the face is the one that executes the ideas for the entertainment of the group. And when I was in middle school, I was the face. In fact, this was my face in middle school. Um, Why are you laughing at my face? Yeah, this was me in 2005. I call this hairstyle hide your acne because that is all that I was doing with that. Just straight down past the brows. That's the scariest thing ever. Take that off. We can get that off the screen. So scary. Um, But one day when me and all my friends were in middle school, we walked into chorus class and to our pleasant surprise, we had a substitute teacher. And I'm not just saying we had like just a fill-in or a teacher was filling in for the class. Like this was the most textbook substitute teacher in the world, pulled straight out of a movie, a gigantic white perm. She was probably in her late 60s, early 70s, and gigantic glasses. Like, have you ever talked to someone with such a strong prescription that you can actually see what's going on behind them by looking at them dead in the eyes? That's what this was like. And so we kind of all knew immediately that something was going to go down. And my friend Brian, well, Brian was the brain of the group. And so we were kind of leaning on Brian saying, hey, Brian, like, whenever you've got an idea, like, Go ahead and feed it to us. And it hit him right before class starts. He goes, guys, I got it. This was genius. I can't believe I'm telling you this. If you have middle schoolers, cover their ears. He said, when she calls our name on roll, we're gonna tell her that our names are different than our real names. Like that was the most brilliant thing we could have ever heard at that time. And so she calls roll and she goes, Charles Wills, are you here? And I'm like, yeah, but you can just call me Johnny, which is just my older brother's name. Like I'm not even being clever or creative. I couldn't come up with something funny to say. And, and we had this, we had a laugh throughout class and we thought we had done something in that moment. And class went on, school day ended. And I realized, realized I'd forgotten my binder in chorus class. And so I go back to class after school and the substitute teacher's still there, but our real music teacher had returned. Maybe she had an appointment or a doctor or whatever, but she was back and I said, hey, sorry, I forgot my binder. And she goes, oh no, it's no problem. You got it, Chuck, or should I call you Johnny? We had been busted. And my school had a zero tolerance policy for lying. And of all my friends that had done that awful thing that we did, only two of us got caught, me and Brian, the brain. And we knew going into it, we were going to get what the school called a major detention, meaning we were going to have to stay after school on a Friday afternoon and do some sort of manual labor, whether that was cleaning toilets or 
changing out toilet paper or sweeping the entire gym, like we knew we were going to be doing some sort of manual labor activity. So we get to the principal's office on Friday afternoon after school, and, and he's flustered. He's done something I'm sure we've all done at some point. He's double booked himself. Him and his buddies had gotten tickets to the Braves game that night. So he had one of two options. He could hang out with these delinquent 11-year-olds as they clean something, or he can go to the Braves with the boys. Like He was like, hey, I'm not going to be here for detention. Sorry. He handed us off to his assistant. But before he did that, he said, here's your task. Baseball season just ended, and the school buses are a mess. I need you guys to clean all the school buses, take out all the trash, polish the seats, make sure the driving area is good, and I'll see you guys on Monday. Go Braves. And he left. Left us to his assistant. We grabbed our tools. We grabbed our trash bags. We head out to the school buses. Now, it may sound like that's like a super daunting task, but our school was so small, we only had two school buses at that time. And so Brian took one, and I took the other, because why would we work together? That makes no sense at all. Uh, we get to our buses and realize the buses are locked. And I was like, oh, that's such a, such a bummer. I'll go see if the principal's assistant can unlock it. So I walk over to her office, and she's obviously upset. Her Friday afternoon was just robbed of her. Uh, and I was like, hey, I'm sorry to bother you, but the buses are locked. And she said, oh, here are the keys. Unlock the, Just bring them back when you're done. <laughs> Some of you are getting ahead of me. <laughs> and I want you to know this is going exactly where you think it's going. <laughs> So about 30 minutes pass, and I hear Brian yell from his bus, Chuck, I have an idea, which is music to my ears when Brian would say that, because it always meant fun was coming. He said, I'm going to start my bus. And I was like, you're dangerous. So Brian gets in his seat. I look on from my bus, and he starts his bus, and the thing shakes and rattles, and he is beaming with joy, and he just cuts it off quickly. And he was like, that was exhilarating. Chuck, you've got to do it. And I was just like, ah, man, I don't know how to drive a car. That's not my thing. I'm only 11, so I don't know if that's something I really want to do. And then he said something to me. It's like the modern-day equivalent of I double-dog dare you. He said this. He said, you won't. <laughs> you won't. You won't start your bus right now. And it just kept ringing in my head. And I was like, well, Brian said I wouldn't, so that means I have to. So I get in my seat and I crank up the bus and his words, you won't, just start ringing in my head. And I'm like, I'm not going to let this guy one-up me. See, earlier that week, ironically, I had asked my brother, hey, why do you put your foot on the brake sometimes to change gears, but not every time? And he explained to me how to change gears in a car. So I put my foot on the brake and it took both my arms. I'm a weak little boy. And I, I pull the thing from park to reverse and I'm looking at Brian and we're just glowing. Like I just changed gears in a car for the first time. And Brian's face quickly goes from pure joy to pure terror. See, I had let my foot off the brake and the bus was on an incline. So this bus starts coming down this hill, kind of at an alarming speed. And all I know is, okay, I know where the brake is. So I slam on the brake, jolts me forward. I whack my head on the steering wheel. And then I just start frantically trying to take the key out of the ignition while the car's in reverse. I don't know that a car has to be in park. I'm 11 years old. So I'm freaking out. And then I just take a deep breath. I get my bearings together. I'm like, okay put it in drive, take both arms, put it in drive, and then I, I fly it up the hill, and it whacks into the curb, I throw it into park, take a huge deep breath, take the keys out, I look at Brian, I look out the windshield, and Glenn Archer, the soccer coach, standing right there, we were busted. Now, when you're 11, and you commit like a slight misdemeanor, you have one of two options. 
You can either own up to what you've done, ask for forgiveness, tell it'll never happen again, I'm so sorry and feel terrible, or you can lie. And this is exactly what I said. I told coach, I was like, hey, we were cleaning the buses and I had the key in my hand and there was so much trash. I didn't want to lose the key and throw the key away. So what did I do? Well, I put the key where keys go and I just stuck it in the ignition. And so I started moving trash. I took the trash out. And when I came back into the bus, went in through the driver's seat, climbing up, I slip and my left foot lands on the brake. And I reach to grab something to pull me up and grab the gear change and pull the thing down into reverse. The bus starts going down the hill and it's about to crash. Coach, not on my watch. So I jump into the seat, assume command, brake, drive, get up, take out the key, look at Brian, thumbs up, look at you. I saved the day. (laughs) Which to come up with on the spot is incredibly impressive, (laughs) but very unbelievable. Unless you're my mother, and my mother is so kind and so loyal, she believed every single word that I had said. In fact, she was going at bat for me. She was like, they messed up. This is on them. They put you in danger. Who gives the keys of the school bus to unsupervised 11-year-olds, which is an amazing point. <laughs> she started talking. She's like, we got to get lawyers involved. Like, this, you could have died. And I'm, then at that point, like, I start getting this feeling For the first time in my life, this feeling of anxiety, I'm like, ah, I lied, and you're believing me, and this is getting really out of hand. Started getting, like, ill. Like, I wasn't sleeping, having a hard time eating. I felt so guilty. And on the drive home from school one day, I did something which, if you have children, I'm sure you've experienced before. I just word emotional explosion vomit all my feelings. I'm like, Mom, I lied to you. I totally didn't do it on accident. I totally drove the bus on purpose. Technically, it was Brian's fault, but like, I still did it. And I didn't get in trouble. I didn't get yelled at. I didn't get grounded. I think my parents knew that any punishment they were going to give me would pale in comparison to what I had already put myself through. And while I wish I could tell you that was the last time I was in dire need of a turnaround, we know that life doesn't work like that, and middle school-sized problems only get bigger as life goes on. But in that moment, I had completely emptied myself, was riddled with guilt, riddled with shame, regret, anxiety. Have you ever had that feeling before? A feeling when things have gone too far, or maybe things didn't go the way that you planned them to go. You know, for you, maybe you walked into your boss's office one day and you had a job and you walked out and, and you didn't. Maybe for you, you're trying to navigate what's next after the divorce or ever since the breakup. For you, maybe it's trying to figure out how to move forward since they've passed away because life has felt like it's been completely on pause and you don't know how to move forward. Maybe you're sitting here today thinking, I don't know what I've done, but for some reason, my kids won't talk to me anymore. That's what we're talking about in this series, navigating a turnaround, what to do when things have gone too far or what to do when they haven't gone the way they've expected. And Joel kicked off this series last week. We're taking a deep dive into the story of Jonah. The story of Jonah is so unique as a prophet in the Old Testament because out of 17 books in the Old Testament about prophets, out of 17 of them, 16 are about a word that God has spoken through someone. 
a message being delivered, a letter being written. And there's one story about one prophet that's actually about what happened to them. And that's the story of Jonah. Now, Joel said this last week, but I guess my biggest request as we enter into this story together is this. Whether you think a man was was literally swallowed by a whale, spoiler alert, that's what happens today. Whether you think a man was literally swallowed by a whale or you think this is a parable or a metaphor for some lesson to be learned, whichever school you fall into or if you fall right in the middle, one thing I know is true is that there is something for everyone in this story. There's something for everyone in this story. It's a story about Jonah doing what he knows he's not supposed to do. God has asked him to deliver a message to Nineveh. If we look at a map here, this map of Israel, we see Joppa is where, is where Jonah lives. He lives right here. And God has said, hey, will you deliver a message from Joppa to the Ninevites up in Nineveh? Not that far of a trek. Like you may just be a camelback for a little bit, but like you'll be able to make it not too bad. And Jonah decides, hey, I actually don't think I want to do that. In fact, I know I don't want to do that. I'm going to do the exact opposite. And, and he heads from Joppa all the way across the sea. He is running as far as possible from where God wants him to go. And he gets on a boat. And while he's on the boat, this horrible storm hits. And Jonah decides, I'm going to hide deep down in the bottom of the boat. And this huge storm hits. And the crew is thinking, they get to this conclusion, someone on this boat has upset some higher power and something has to be done. And where's Jonah? Well, he's below deck. Not just hiding at this point, he's literally sleeping, trying to hide from his own reality, escaping a fallout. This is where we pick up with Jonah today, where if we're being honest, we've probably found ourselves at some point, hiding from the reality that our own circumstances have brought. So I'm paraphrasing here, and this is the way I just like to picture this happens. Oh, Jonah, they wake up Jonah, they bring him to the top of the ship, and they say, hey, someone here is upset a higher power, we're going to draw straws. Whoever gets the shortest straw, you're out of the boat. And so they hand out straws, Jonah gets a short straw, and he is thrown out into the water. And the Bible says that once he's in the water, the storm stops, it completely calms. I like to think in that moment, like the one guy on the boat that was like rooting for Jonah, you know, like when he drew the short straw was like, guys, this is a prophet. I really don't know if, if we're thinking we've upset a higher power. I don't know if throwing a prophet out of the boat is the best move. And Jonah's in the water and everything's calm in him. They have that moment and Jonah's like... Yeah, I'm the guy. And that's where we pick up in chapter 1, verse 17. It says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. He's hurled into the deep water, and a monster literally comes out and consumes him. So what does he do? Well, chapter 2 starts, says, From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord God. Earlier this year, we, we did this series uh, up in transit about prayer. And the example that we always use is, have you ever walked into first period and you think it's just like a normal day and then teacher says, take out your number two pencil, it's time for a test. And what do you do? Well, obviously you start praying. You're like, God, I, I promise I'll read the syllabus next time. Like, I'll, I'll manage my calendar better. I'll be a better straight A student, but will you please just give me every answer to this test and I promise you, I'll do better next time. Like, I feel like Jonah's prayer, he's in the whale now, and he's like, I think I should call upon God. But it's so interesting, because in chapter one, we see that God has called upon Jonah for help. And now in chapter two, Jonah is calling upon 
God for help. I want to look at the first half of this prayer uninterrupted for a second. Starting in chapter two, verse two, he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Continue here in chapter four. I said, I have been banished from your sight yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. He's describing this feeling of literally what it feels like to drown. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth bare me in forever. So Jonah gets thrown into the ocean and he's forced to confront his own reality. The, back in ancient times, big bodies of water, oceans or seas were were sometimes metaphorical for for the mind. And one way we can interpret this first half of this this prayer is is Jonah is being forced to confront his own consciousness and he's being pulled down deep to his own subconsciousness, trying to find the answer to the question of why. Why am I doing what I know I'm not supposed to do? Why am I running from God? What is it in me that is causing me to do this? You know, for Jonah, it could have been he hated the Ninevites. He had strong hatred for that group of people. Or maybe he thought, this, is, this, is too, this isn't worth my time. If I, if I ditch and if I bail, maybe God will just pick someone else and I won't have to do it. We were being honest. I think what it really is, is Jonah has this deep-rooted pride about him thinking that he might know better than God. That's played out in our own lives, right? Like you have had a coworker get a promotion that they've been there half as long as you and you know that you deserve that and you are hurt and you are jealous and you're angry. Maybe for you, you haven't been to Thanksgiving dinner because of the effects that the 2020 election had on you and your family. That is the hill you're gonna die on and you can't seem to get past that. You are hurt. You are angry. Maybe for you, you have to do the work and you have to dig deep to figure out what that is for you. But one thing I think is true about all of us is when we find ourselves in these situations where we're in need of a turnaround, so often we think it's entirely up to us to get ourselves out of it, right? Like I drove the school bus and I thought I could just lie my way out of it, right? But what Jonah realizes, and what I hope we all come to realize at some point is that it's okay to call out to God for help. So I wanna look at the last half of of this prayer here. He says, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. And it says, those words, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. He's realized this is what life looks like for me when I try and do it my way. And this is not where I wanna be anymore. So he calls upon the Lord. He says, salvation comes from the Lord. He's asking, will you deliver me from my current circumstances? 
I'm in dire need of a turnaround. Will you help me? And the prayer concludes saying, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. He natured into deep waters, trying to figure out why is it that I'm doing what I know I shouldn't do? And he realized, well, it was his own pride. His pride was leading him in the wrong direction. He believed he knew better than God, and that is where it got him, and he called upon the Lord to deliver him. He owned up to it. And that's something that Joel asked us, challenged us with last week, that we would own up to our situations, would we own up to our own realities. For you, maybe that looks like the way that you talk to your children, the way you down-talk to your children, it's building a wall between you two. And maybe it's time to, to own that. But for you, it's realizing, hey, the nature of me getting laid off, maybe that was entirely circumstantial and it had nothing to do with my character. Or it had everything to do with your character. It's time for you to own that. Maybe for you, you know that it's time to have that conversation with your spouse. Finances aren't good right now, and it's time we talk about it. Maybe it's saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm tired of eating dinner together, but in silence. We have to own up. And then once we've owned up, we have to do the work. We have to dive deep. This is where we see Jonah calling upon the Lord, asking the Lord to help. Because when we're doing this work and we call upon the Lord, we dive deep. We say, Lord, will you help me? Will you deliver me from it? He promises to us that he will He promises to us that he will deliver us from it. Imagine if you believe that. Imagine if that was true about your life. Like you prayed to the Lord to give you the courage to have this conversation with your spouse and then you sat down with him and you said, I hate my job and I've hated it for a long time and I really just need you to know. And they respond by saying, well, thank you for telling me. Let's figure this out together. Maybe for you, it's realizing, hey, the way I talk to my kids is not bringing us closer. It's pushing us away. And you decide, you pray to God, hey, will you change my posture in this? Maybe your children will start to come to you with major life updates or advice. Imagine if your child asked you questions about life before they asked the internet. But what we have to do in diving deep is we have to be self-aware about our situation. So my question to you really is this, what are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? What is it that you know you need to let go of? I mean, taking it a step further, in what way do you need to humble yourself? Is it for the first time saying the words, you're right, I'm wrong. Maybe for you, it's being the first one to apologize, even though you know you're not the one in the wrong. It's having that conversation with your spouse. What are you holding on to? In what way do you need to humble yourself? Because that's what's so important, right? We saw that with Jonah. It's how we posture ourselves. Not reaching out to God in, in anger 
or in frustration or cynicism or disdain with a posture of humility. Reaching out to God with a posture of humility. I don't want you to miss this. This is so important. When we call upon God to deliver us, he will deliver us when and how he chooses, not when and how we choose. When and how he chooses, not when and how we choose. It could be a snap of a finger fix, something so easy that could change overnight and, and, and it would be like nothing ever happened if, if God would just deliver me from it. But what we don't see is there may be more for us to learn the longer we sit in this, but we have to trust that he will deliver us from it. I'm not sure when Jonah prayed that prayer, but the, the start of the chapter says he spent three days and three nights in the whale. He could have called upon the Lord the second he got there and the Lord could have just had the whale spit him up. He learned his lesson, but, but Jonah needed to sit in that a little bit longer. So what are you holding on to? And what way do you need to humble yourself? You know, earlier I shared the story about how I drove a school bus in middle school and, and I lied to my mom. And it really hurt our relationship. I had done something very dangerous. I could have seriously put myself into some serious harm. And I lied to her about that. And that was hard. And I realized hey, the way I see my path going, staying on this, is not where I think I want to end up. And so I prayed. I was like, Lord, will you correct something in me? Will you give me a gut check? And will you reveal to me the path that you think is best for me? What, reveal to me what I think maybe is the wise choices for me as I continue. And so something you should know about me is I'm a very all or none person. If I'm going for something, I'm going for it. And so I decided the only logical next step was to run for student body president. And so that's what I did. I put up posters, I campaigned, I gave speeches. I wanted it. And to my surprise, and certainly to the surprise of the faculty, I won. I won. And while I'd like to think it was because I had some like amazing like political hook in my speech or like the way I carried myself, they were like, that's a politician right there. That's not true. I was 11 years old. But word had gotten out that I had driven the school bus. <laughs> and my campaign slogan was, hop on the bus with Chuck <laughs> and let's drive to victory. Hop on the bus with Chuck and let's drive to victory. I like to imagine that it was a landslide of unprecedented times at that school in 2005. But I got to this point where I needed to, to let go of what I was holding on to. My pride had gotten me in the situation and it had hurt my relationship with my family and I realized I needed to let go of that. I needed to stop being that person. And it didn't happen overnight. I didn't wake up the next day and everything was just perfect, and I knew exactly where I needed to go. No, that's not realistic. But it happened. And I'm so grateful that it did. 
for what it meant for my friendships, for what it meant for my relationship with my mom. And I know it's, it's a story of an 11-year-old in middle school in need of a dire turnaround, but the principles and the ideas are true. I let go of what I was holding on to, of what I thought was true about me. So what are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? I can't answer that question for you, but I want you to do the work to answer that question for yourself. For some of us, that's the easiest answer in the world. You just know, boom, I shouldn't do that, or I shouldn't be that, or I shouldn't behave like that. But for some of us, we're like, man, what am I holding on to? And that's where we have to own up and we have to dive deep and figure out the answer to that question. But one thing that I know is true is that beautiful things happen when we let go of what we're holding on to and we give it to God. Beautiful things happen when we let go of what we're holding on to and we give it to God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the story of Jonah and for the truth that it can reveal. God, I pray that as we posture ourselves into this next week, Lord, would you give us the time to process, the time to own up, and the time to dive deep, Lord, as we realize and maybe as we wrestle with navigating what is it that we're holding on to? Would you reveal your truth to us more and more every single day? We are so grateful that a story so old can still bring so much truth today, Lord. We ask this, we ask so much more. We love you and we praise you. Amen.